caught in thunderstorms in the Alpine, your gear starts to like ring like a hive of wasps. Oh, it does. I've experienced that here in the Rockies just above Canmore. It sounds like nothing, first of all. And you're like, oh, what? I wonder what that could be. But it got to the point where I heard the cliff bar wrapper in my hand was crinkling. There was some electricity going on. <laughs> the rope is free! What? The rope is free! And I immediately thought he was dead or at least seriously hurt. And my guts had been ripped out of my body and were being contained by my flight suit. I know a mountain lion is on top of me. Welcome to episode 10 of the Wildertainment Podcast. I'm your host, Vince. Welcome to the show where we tell entertaining wilderness adventure stories. Today, we got a good one. We got two folks that have an epic journey in the Waddington Range in beautiful British Columbia in the big old mountains up there. They tell about thunder strikes. They tell about crevasses falling down like bread loaves. They talk about sharing a hut with the one, the only, the photography and cinematography superstar, Jimmy Chin, and the man who filmed the beautiful movie Free Solo with Alex Honnold. So you get a little insider's view to an amazing film crew and some famous rock climbers. Again, this is the last time this will be hosted on the Rescue Swimmer Mindset podcast. It will no longer be a sub-series. Wildertainment will become its own thing. So follow Wildertainment on YouTube. You can follow it on fucking Spotify. You can follow it on Apple Podcasts. You can find it on whatever other podcast apps you have. Maybe it's on iTunes. I don't know. I don't. I just send it out there. You do what you want with it. You listen to it. There we go. So without further ado, my two guests today, Mike Gallimore and Nick Pagale. I've listened to like your like a couple of your podcast episodes, Vince, and like I listened to the one with the helicopter crash and I was like so gripped and like I was like anchored to my seat. I only intended to listen to like ten minutes and I was like sat there for an hour and a half, unable to like pull myself from this like amazing story. So it was kind of like pretty unique, I guess. Yeah, Gina um, Pinu is definitely an insane survivalist story for sure. And told it very well as well i mean I, there's so many facts that are atrocious that it's i don't think anybody could tell a terrible story with that but she did a really good job too yeah another thing i li- like enjoyed listening to about your podcast episodes is like yeah that like you feel like you're kind of on a journey with these people right when they're kind of talking about their adventures and like i really enjoyed like being like having that picture painted for me right on yeah let's let's get it rolling Sweet. all right so today i got mike gallimore and nick Bagley on the podcast. Great story. And I saw you guys in the Canadian Alpine Journal. So we have some good stuff to talk about today. Thanks for coming on, guys. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for having us on here. Yeah, thanks, Vincent. Yeah. How do you uh, get started on writing an article for the Alpine Journal? Um, Honestly, just being like, hey, we did something new in a cool place of Canada. And after reading, like, I've got a bunch of the more recent ones on a shelf over there and figured, like, why not write it up and send it in? And that's why it's actually a year late. It should be in the 2019 edition, but it's actually in the 2020 uh, because I straight up missed the deadline and then was like, hey, this seems cool. I'll send it over to Mike. And he was like, yeah, let's 
send it in and see what people say about it. The editor of the Alpine Journal actually lives in town. He comes into the climbing gym that I work at. So we corresponded a bit about like what sort of photos he wanted. And yeah. I totally get the time delay. This podcast is only going to get released in 2023, but we're filming in 21. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's, let's get into the story. So I liked how you started your article in the journal about basically Mike calling you. And I want to hear what that sales pitch sounded like. Oh, yeah. So I was like actually coming to the end of my uh, working holiday visa over here in Canada. And uh, I had a couple of friends, Shira and Mike, who had been to the Waddington Range before. And they had two spaces in a helicopter and she were, she was like asking me every week she was like do you want to go to the ward and I was like oh no you know it's gonna cost a lot of money and like I think I went for about four weeks like saying no and then I was like what the hell am I saying <laughs> like $500 to go alpine climbing for two weeks is not a lot of money and I don't know what happened it's like this switch and then I was like oh no I've only got like two weeks left to find a partner who I'm gonna find so I immediately thought of Nick. Me and Nick had been uh, climbing in some pretty out there places already. I mean, like, not really out there um, in terms of, like, location. We went up Slessy, but it was, like, also May. So it was, like, Slessy yeah. in between seasons. Um, so it wasn't a... quite a winter ascent. It wasn't quite a summer ascent. And it was definitely, like, full adventure. It took us, like, three full days. So I knew Nick pretty well after this. And I was like, yeah, Nick's probably like the guy. So I called him um, whilst I was at work. I think it was one of those where like, yeah, you just kind of have an idea and you're like, oh yeah, Nick. And so I like, went into like the, the back room where they keep all the holds at the climbing gym. I was like, called Nick. I was like, Nick, <laughs> Nick, there's like two spaces in a helicopter to go to the one. Do you want to come? And like. Yeah, so Nick, at your end, what happened there? Yeah, at my end, I, I'd seen, like, I know Shira as well, and I'd seen the post, like, a month before that they're looking for two people for the wine. I'm like, yeah, nah, whatever. And then my dad's actually visiting. I was living in Banff at the time, and he's visiting me, and we're out for dinner. And we're just kind of eating appetizers, having drinks, and then my phone starts buzzing, and I see it's Mike, and I'm like... Mike lives across BC from me. Like, if he's calling, it's not like we chat on the phone on the regular. Like, something's up. And so I'm like, excuse me, Dad, i got to take this. And I, like, go over into the bathroom. And I'm just, like, sitting there in the bathroom. And Mike's like, hey, so there's space on a helicopter to the, to the Waddington. Do you want to go? And I'm like, fuck yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Why not? You actually, you quit your job for that trip. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it's not that I quit my job for the trip as much as I was like, oh, I'll see if my, my work can give me the time off. And I asked for the time off and they were like, oh, yeah, just talk to us again later. And then I was like, well, I need this time a month later. And they were like, yeah, so we need you through that whole time. So what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, um it's a minimum wage retail job. So, uh, it's been great working here, but I'm gonna go alpine climbing. See ya. <laughs> I like that. Mike basically put out the Batman symbol and you were in a, in a meeting with your dad, not a meeting, but you know, having dinner, catching yeah. up. you're like, dad, duty calls me. I'm out of here. 
and you guys are both like little girls like sit like behind like a wall <laughs> like you're in the bathroom mike's i'm assuming i'm picturing mike behind the climbing wall just like yeah just going over the logistics like you want to do this with me <laughs> exactly was i wasn't supposed that, to be on my phone at work i was working was. behind the front desk at the ground up climbing gym i was like yeah, like, snuck behind in the holds room. I was like, "Quick, gotta make this phone call. The idea's gonna like fizzle out. I'm gonna like see sense in a minute. <laughs> gotta get it while it's hot, you know." Yeah. But... Here's the deal: it's a helicopter. It's only five hundred dollars. Come on. <laughs> That's cool. So, all right. So you drive out, and in the article, it said you drive out to was it Tatla Lake? Is that where the helicopter launches from? Tatla Lake, and then uh, white is it White Horse helicopters? White Saddle. Uh, white Saddle. White Saddle. Yeah. And that's um, Mike who flies flies the choppers right so just in yeah just in case you're getting this wrong there's mike mike and mike involved okay. in this whole thing and which mike was it who flew the helicopter was it the first the second or the third i think it's the third because you're the first the other mike g is the second and pilot mike is the number three so we'll just go for the first the second and the third from here on out. yeah yeah gotcha <laughs> all right continue nick yeah well no we just drove out there and it was smoky everywhere because it was bad forest fire season and we got out to uh to where the where we flew out of and we kind of all met up literally at the helipad which is kind of impressive given how far away from service everything is there but we Mm. we all managed to make it and slept in these in these folks driveway overnight and packed the next morning and threw everything into a helicopter and flew away for 45 minutes. Now, this is no joke just to get to the access point of the helicopter launch. Tyler Lake, I looked at it on the map. It seems pretty out there. You're going, you're driving up. It's not, it was like nine hours from Squamish and Squamish is an hour north of Vancouver. So it's pretty far out there. I mean, it was a full day of driving. It was pretty cool though. Like we like, I was like listening to a bunch of new tunes and like I knew that Shearer and Mike were in one car and Nick was coming over from another direction from Canmore. Yeah. And then I was coming from Squamish and like, I knew that we were all like looking up. I was looking at all the cars. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I saw, did I catch up with you or something? Nick? Yeah. Yeah. Drive? We saw each other on the highway and then I kind of like pulled up alongside and I like looked across and you were there and I was like, Oh, hey, roll down the window. Hey, <laughs> Hey. <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of yeah. cool, like all being on that same trajectory, and then like the packing, and yeah, kind of mouse proofing the the car before we flew in the helicopter was a bit of a consideration because we're going to leave the vehicles there for two weeks. Yeah, yeah. Well, before we get into the mission of like mm. you guys flying out there, let's let's build a little backstory to you too. So, Mike, why did you choose Nick as your your main gunman? I was talking with Nick a little earlier and he was telling me he's a ACMG, the Association Canadian Mountain Guide. So was, I don't know, like what was your decision process of selecting this person? Because it's a pretty big deal when you're doing these mountaineering. <laughs> well, I guess like um, most of my climbing partners at the time were people over in, in Squamish and like my big, my friend group was, was mostly with like rock climbers and, uh, you know, people were interested in going out to the books and kind of like sending their projects at that time in the summer. And I hadn't really done all that much alpine climbing with anyone. So my kind of alpine partners, I could count them on one hand, right? I knew that like I'd been through this three-day epic already with Nick and he was a good friend. <laughs> and it he was, was like, epic. <laughs> it was like, yeah, and like, I was like, oh, he's a really solid person to have in the mountains. Now, what made him a, a really solid person to have in the mountains? Like, I guess like a breadth of 
experience and a breadth of time, a breadth of like time doing legwork as well, lots of skiing experience and lots of like ice climbing experience. And yeah, I mean, like Nick lives over in the Rockies, right? They're all like, the mountains are bigger over there. So it breeds a better, better class of alpinist, right? And notably the rock is worse over here. So yeah. we're used to like, we're used to like climbing up like crumbling piles of choss mm-hmm. and terrible rock. And that really showed actually, like when we were doing that South Ridge of Serra too, there were like sections where a few of my partners would have like kind of not really been psyched on, on the rock quality. And, uh, it was... Nick was solid. Subpar. Yeah. It was subpar rock, but I mean, that's, that's par for the course here in our like, in our crumbly crumbly limestone mountains out here in the border of Alberta and BC. It's such a pity, hey? Imagine if it was all stuck together out there. I know, right? Well, that's why, that's why I climb in winter, because the ice <laughs> sticks all the crumbly rock together. And that's amazing. But then, like, when it's not stuck together, then it's um, substantially mm. less than amazing. I've only really driven through Banff, and every time I'm just jaw-dropped looking at these mountains and these facades and everything and i'm thinking oh my god well i'm thinking the ice climbing specifically and but the rock climbing could be phenomenal too but everyone says the same thing it's crumbly nonsense out there so that's interesting what kind of personality does it take or what kind of skills does it take to develop yourself on so choss is crumbly rock so how do you develop yourself to not break down when the things that you're holding your life onto is falling apart you gotta climb a bunch of choss yeah i think a lot of it is just volume and like I'll be the first to say I'm not an especially good rock climber in terms of absolute hardness, like hard difficulty, but I've been climbing for long enough that I've built like a relatively wide base of low grade climbs. So climbing easy stuff that doesn't have a lot of places to put protection to clip your rope into places like climbing a lot of easier stuff where the rock might be subpar and you kind of need to distribute your weight on everything it's like it's i i haven't climbed as nearly as hard as mike has but i i think i've been able to climb a lot more bad climbing which seems funny to put it that way but i guess i'm it takes somebody who's a bit of a connoisseur of bad rock and well, we got that in spades out here. Every time I'm sketched out on a climb, I always call it, and Mike, you might get offended by this and I hope you do, but I call it English climbing. Whenever I'm mm-hmm. doing some random gear protection on a route and I'm sketched out and I don't know where the next piece is and it's pretty crumbly, I'm I'm like, what is this, the UK? It's mis- misconception really that the rock quality in the UK is bad, but like there is crumbly rock in the UK like anywhere. But yeah. You're, you're right, Vince. Like the kind of general nature of UK trad climbing, if you're away from the grit zone, if you're on the sea cliffs and stuff and in the mountains, you're questing like upwards, not knowing when your next piece of gear is going to be, uh, fiddling in weird pieces, like equalizing uh, a few pieces together, using weird bits of protection, like for sure. Like that's the like skills that you have to learn to climb safely out there on those kind of rock types. And then another, another thing as well is like the, do- the Italian Dolomites are like really close for a Brit. So I would like go and do like a couple of weeks a year in the, in the Dolomites. Like that is like such a crumbly rock type. It's a little bit like limestone, but unlike limestone, it's not soluble. So it doesn't stick together over time. Right. Mm. Uh, so it's like, you've got these old, these massive mountains with a, uh, I think it's magnesium that flows through the rock. 
to like convert the limestone into uh, into dolomite, and then it like no longer is soluble. So these these mountains get uplifted and then they shatter and then like they start to fall down. And they're in the process. All mountains are in the process of falling down, right? Some just quicker than others. At least with limestone, sometimes it's stuck together. With dolomite, like you have to kind of like everything looks like it's loose, and you have to find the bits that are actually stuck to the mountain. So as you're climbing, you'll like reach up for a hold and with one hand, try and pull it off. If it doesn't come off, it's probably okay. But then to see if it's actually stuck, you take the other hand and you knock at it and you like give it like a little tap, tap, tap. And if you feel any vibration, then that rock might be loose. But if you don't feel any vibration, then you're probably good to yard on it and pull really hard. There's, there's so many different ways of engaging with climbing. And I really enjoy this, like climbing a loose rock because you're not only doing all of your climbing, you're also testing to see what's <laughs> part of the like terminal earth, right? And that's a, that's a very similar style of climbing that we have here. Like you'll reach up and you'll... Oh, um, no, 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 that one over there. Mm -hmm. And there's times where I've even like kicked the, kicked the rock a little bit with my climbing shoes to be like, all right, that one's, you can see it shifting a little bit, but that bit there, that's like, that's stuck on real good. And I can put my weight on that to keep upward progress. It makes me think like this type of climbing is improv to what sport climbing would be acting. You know, it's a script you got it dialed and it's safe and you know the things are going to be there versus this form of climbing is more well we'll see what happens we're gonna we're gonna flow with it we're gonna go in different directions if we see some predicaments up ahead yeah that's that's not entirely wrong and we have a bit of a saying here in the rockies when in doubt traverse so when you're when you don't know where to go go sideways and it'll likely be better yeah. And then you could like, so if you look at the root diagrams on lots of the cliffs here, they'll go like up a little ways and they'll go that way a bit and then up and back that way. And they just kind of snake their way up as opposed to you look at the roots in Squamish and they're just like. <laughs> You're right. Right. Yeah. And um, we won't get into that, but Mike, we might have you on the podcast in the future talking about, was that in the UK where you fell while climbing into the ocean? Yeah, I fell headfirst into the sea. No more. That's it. We're cutting that off, saving it for future reference. We'll <laughs> oh, do that shit. one live. I need, I need to listen to this one because I haven't heard that bit. It's going to be titled Rock Climber Pulled to the Depths of the Ocean Bottom. <laughs> Tune in next time. <laughs> All right, let's, let's, let's get into the mission, you guys. So who, who was the lead dog as far as planning this and deciding what the mission is going to be once you guys fly out? I, I really think it was pretty collaborative. We kind of both really wanted to do something on Waddington, I think. We, we chatted and we we're like, these are the sorts of things that we definitely want to get on, at least one big thing. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, but I don't think we had one real leader and one follower per se. No, definitely not. My, my usual way of going into these things is like, I find it really pretty difficult to like study the guidebook. I just like can look at the pictures and then it doesn't really make any sense to me until I'm actually there looking at the peaks. But then when I'm looking at the peaks, I'm like, oh yeah, like let's go climb that one. Um, so I found it pretty hard to get any objectives together. Um, apart from there's like obviously the big one, like Mount Waddington itself. And then, yeah, you kind of like ask yourself the questions like, well, do I have the skills to do this mountain? Do I have the experience? Um, are the conditions right? 
is you know are, are we a good partnership for it and when all the questions are yeah like answered yeah then you don't really have a reason left not to go do it it's going to be amazing right so that was kind of and, and they're always like really scary objectives and even like the south ridge of sarah too like i was like 1500 meters well 1800 if you count from the glacier because most people get yeah. heli dropped onto a little knob above the above the glacier but we because of where we had our base camp we had to like hike down to the glacier and start it really from the bottom but I think that was like five nine with the ice alpine ice three okay. yeah like the the idea yeah. of that like climbing an eighteen hundred meter route like to me it's like it's pretty scary you know it's pretty terrifying so my my kind of going into it is always like this kind of like duality kind of thing you're like psyched because you're in this amazing environment going and exploring these alpine areas is is really beautiful but it's also like a lot of doubt you know self-doubt and like kind of fear and like you like you're very aware you're putting yourself out there and you know if anything goes wrong then it's, it's kind of just you uh there's there's no like rescue close by yeah everything's kind of on bhf radio so yeah like how the planning happened it was more like for me it was like a consideration of am i justified in kind of going up this this peak like based on my experience like yes or no and then trying to like get my like my will on board as well I'm like okay rationalize it now I've got to want it as well <laughs> so sometimes it's about just taking the first step and yeah like engaging with like big mountain objectives like that for me is like you just like look at the first uh, first step and be like I can get down to the glacier and then after the, and then after the glacier you just do the next step right and so I compartmentalize these things into what's the next section of this massive task that we've got ahead of us Sorry, I went a bit off point there, but yeah. Let's get into the, the mission and I, yeah, I want to get into this whole Serac apocalypse. Well, the day we flew in, we walked over to a, like this viewpoint spot. It's actually called Photo Point that you can see like all the peaks in this area. We're like, all right, we can see it. It looks in condition. We can trace it out on the mountain. We can see where this thing actually goes and it looks pretty good. Right, let's go do it. Yeah, I think we were actually like looking at the lines of crevasses and for a while we were like, oh man, there's no route up that glacier. But then like we were like, oh, well, no, there is. If you go right there and you like skitter that way a little bit and then you can like thread yeah. between these two right there and then you can go back left. There was definitely a little bit of unknown as to whether we could get up the Bravo Glacier. And it was like quite late in the season, right? It was July or August. Yeah, it's the end of July and, well, just to set the stage a little bit, the, the route kind of starts down at the bottom and then goes up the Cauldron Glacier, I think, down low, and then onto the Bravo Glacier. You take that up to just below the summit, then you climb up these rocky cliffs to the actual summit. Now, the which summit are we speaking about here? This is Mount Waddington. It's the tallest mountain in the coast range, and at least the route has been... Just to kind of put it in perspective, I think the guidebook says it's like a 200 meter mixed climb on top of Mount Rainier, as far as like the actual <laughs> difficulties. So yeah. you climb the you climb this big glaciated mountain, and then you get to the top of the glacier, and then you're looking up at this rock face that may or may not have ice on it. Yeah, I got pictures in front of me now, and I'll put them up on YouTube. It looks it looks like a cartoon almost this this rock face and i don't know which 
face I'm looking at per se. Which face did you guys approach it by? We did it by the east side. That's the Bravo Glacier route. And we got nowhere close to the summit, unfortunately. So, well, let's get into why. Yeah, my understanding of this is that, like, early in the season, um, the glacier is, like, pretty chill because there's loads of snow and the crevasses are all filled in. But then the top section is this, like, mixed monster, right? And then, but later in the season, the top section is just a rock climb, which is pretty appealing to me. And then the lower section is, like, crevasses and nastiness. That's attractive. That's an attractive sounding climb. Oh yeah, we were definitely in the last in the latter part of that whole thing. We had crevasses and nastiness in spades. It's one of those things where like we were like, well, like it might be too late, it might be out of condition, but we can definitely like walk that way and we can like, you know, keep doing the next step and turn back when it doesn't make any more sense. Um so that was my approach. Like we didn't know for sure whether it was going to be too late in the season and we wanted to go find out. But you guys basically scoped out the labyrinth between, like, across this glacier. Yeah, I had, like, this uh, this really kind of cheap camera. It was, I can't remember the, the, the brand, but it was, like, this Samsung thing. And it had a 20 times zoom. And it was a 20 times optical zoom. So, like, when you zoomed, like, you had this, like, proboscis that kind of, like, came out really, really far. And you could, like, use it like a like a telescope it was sick so you'd like zoom in and then take a picture and then you could zoom in on what you'd zoomed in on so i used to use it for like bird watching and stuff and like obviously like for scoping routes but actually that was the camera that broke when i when i fell into the sea i had it on my harness and it like uh, yeah it's no more i'm after i'm on the market for a, a 20 times optical zoom camera at the moment dude we have about like 20 camera uh sponsors on this podcast i'll hook you up don't worry about it just talk to awesome. me after the show yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. yeah, so, like, right. so you're yeah. through the maze you're, you guys are little mice going through your maze yeah so we just we actually descended like the hut that we were staying at was like way up on the other side of the valley it was like over a thousand meters up on the opposite side of the glacier so we actually set off in the late afternoon packed up set off we were planning to like sleep at some point along the way anyway so it didn't really matter what time we set off there but we had intended to get to like the the base camp below the below the start of the route that night but actually crossing over the Tiedemann glacier was a lot slower going than we thought and when dark like there were a lot of crevasses and they were open it was like icy and they were filled with water too so it's not like you could walk over a bridge and just like hope that you didn't punch through into air beneath Mm. it's like you have to kind of thread your way through and these snow bridges may or may not have these pools underneath that would just like soak you and there goes the trip and we'd have to go back and dry all our shit out. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the Tiedemann glacier, which is way in the bottom of the valley, kind of like below everything else. And it's like a dry glacier at points, like Nick says, it's water flowing under it. And we thought we'd just like kind of romp across it, you know, just like rope up walk fast across it and actually what we were doing was like looking really hard at the ground taking one step like jumping over like rivers and stuff and like it was way slower going than we thought and there was a point in the middle of the night there when we were crossing this place here where like we kind of realized that we'd taken quite a few risks I think like just by it being dark and yeah, we decided to put up a tent there on the glacier. I think the wind had really, really picked up as well. And so we took a probe, found a spot that didn't have any big holes underneath it. 
and like stuck a probe down through the snow and found a good spot to put the tent up. Luckily, we had a quite small tent and then uh, wait till the next day. And So you have to test to make sure that your tent isn't going to cave in through mm. where you're going to build it or set it. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> have to make sure that you're on ice, not on like a, a snow bridge over something deep down in the hole. Imagine you wake up through the night and your your whole floor just caves in and you're at the bottom of a cross. Yeah, my mom's always telling me about this recurring nightmare that she has and it's like the earth opens up and she falls in. Yeah, it would be like my mom's worst nightmare. Well, it sounds like you guys getting through this ice field is it's like the floor is lava except it's ice yeah yeah we had to be really yeah. careful so then when the when the, we got like first light we got up packed up the tent and then continued and yeah the crevasses out there were like definitely like the biggest uh that i've ever seen and had to navigate around um the thing with crevasses if if your listeners don't know what crevasses are then basically like when you get a massive snow dump or like an area where it's like continuously snowing over time that snow builds up and it gets heavier and heavier and compresses itself into ice and then that ice because it's under so much pressure uh flows like liquid uh down down the mountain side right um but then when that solid ice flows around a corner or over a convexity, it cracks open again. And those are what you call crevasses, and they are everywhere around glaciers. Like you, you can kind of know where to expect them, but they're really bad things. You don't want to fall in one. Like you know, you could get injured or you could just fall to your death. So you've got to be roped up whenever you're traveling along this, this kind of terrain. But yeah, these were definitely some of the biggest ones that we'd seen. Another thing about crevasses that will help uh, to understand is that like they're kind of like this mixture of snow and ice and the whole mountain is basically moving like in the in the early hours of the morning is when everything's most stable so like 2 a.m 3 a.m 4 a.m 5 a.m everything's like really cold because the sun's been down for ages it's the coldest part of the night at kind of like four five six a.m and then when the sun starts coming up again everything starts warming up again and things move faster the snow gets softer the snow bridges that cover the crevasses that you walk along sometimes uh, they get softer and they're more likely to collapse so the the whole like way of like navigating around like glacial terrain is safer in the early hours of the morning, which is why you've got this term alpine start, you know, an alpine start is one where like you're doing your approach in the coldest part of the day to minimize the objective danger. And there's a number of other objective dangers that also happen throughout the day that not necessarily get into now, but generally at nighttime it's safe. Aside from the fact that you can't see anything in the daytime, it can get it can get real. Why, why can't we get into the dangers? Well, I mean, there, there's a lot of them. And I mean, there's rock fall, there's ice fall, there's Serac fall, there's like stuff starts moving. Well, I want to know about y'all's dangers. I want to know about the Serac falls and stuff. Ah, yeah. well. So, well, picking up the story, we got to the normal base camp. It's a place called Rainy Knob. 
and thankfully it wasn't rainy when we were there, but we then stayed the rest of the day and decided because of dangers that Mike just outlined, we want to get started like 11, 11 p.m. We wanted to like be on the glacier when it was like most stable because we'd just seen this party come off the Waddington. It did get an ascent actually the three days prior to us getting there. And the people coming down said the, the Bravo Glacier was in like really shaky condition, like didn't know if it was going to go like again. They felt like they were like the last people who could have got up there that season because they said the whole thing was moving. Like they said that crevasses, which were like in one position when they went up, were they like, totally gone or in a different position when they came down. So, yeah, we basically arrived at that camp at like 10 in the morning or something like that, 9 in the morning. And we wanted to wait until the coolest part of the day. So we literally just sat there for like 10 or 12 hours, right? <laughs> yeah, had a, had a bit of a nap, sunbathed, perhaps a little bit too much. I got quite red um, <laughs> and tried not to eat our food or drink too much of our uh not use too much of our fuel because mm. we might need that up on the mountain. I thought maybe we should have started a bit later, but I just got yeah. impatient. I was like, "Can we go now? It's like 11 p.m. Is that late? Is that late?" It's enough? been dark for dark for a couple of hours. But actually, well. it was it was still pretty warm when we mm -hmm. when we were traveling. But we we got going and we kind of winded our way up a little ways in the glacier, like involving yeah, we were roped up and we had a little bit of ice climbing, like relatively easy and walking around holes and then we got to uh when you say walking around holes like these things were like terrifying they were like massive they were bottomless massive cathedral sized chasms that you can't see the bottom of you kind of like shine your head torch into there and you the bottom falls out of your belly right you're like i, I just remember like looking left and right at one point and thinking like holy crap like the size, like, and that's what gets me about being in the, these mountains. The size of these crevasses is just really awesome. Like, really, like, inspires this, like, sense of, uh, of awe. And the fact that they're made of this glittery glacial blue ice that just, like, that really just adds to it, that just shines in the light of your headlamp as you're going up through it. If you guys want to see, like, the most sexiest Instagram out there as far as outdoor photos go in my personal opinion jeff mercier that french ice climber slash alpiner man whoever's shooting that guy is crushing it it's just him climbing out of these crevasses and different like these different yeah different spots and it's just beautiful blue and whatever angles he's getting clutch and i totally get what you're saying yeah and then eventually after some some of this, we go up through this glacier past these incredibly large blocks of ice that are just perched there. And we get to a spot where there's one of these crevasses and it's been plugged with debris has fallen into it. And so it's, there's, but it goes all the way across our entire line of travel. So there's no way, there's no way to walk around it like we have. Could you describe it a little more? What do you mean by, why is it in? impassable to go over what it's the rocks embedded in the ice no so it's a slightly overhung ice wall that stretches from a rock wall on the right 
across into a field of these like these spikes and these daggers of ice they're just you wouldn't be able to find your way through those without too much risk of falling into a bottomless hole okay and so we figured that we we have to there's this one spot that's plugged and we were like we have to find a way over top of this and in fact that over that other party had mentioned it they'd they'd repelled using their ropes over it as opposed to walking down it they placed an anchor at the top left it behind pulled the rope down after them and kept on going they so they they mentioned that that might be a spot that would be challenging for us so what do you mean what's plugged mean i'm sorry so the so the actual place where we're standing is on one side is this ice wall on the other side is a lower that look the other side of the crevasse is quite a bit lower and but it's there's a there's a hole in between but there's been debris that's fallen into that that's formed a bridge Mm. so we don't know how deep it is but it appears that there's a snow platform in this crevasse that it is supporting at least our weight how deep it is i i don't especially want to picture yeah, so my memory of this part is that we we basically got to like the whole glacier at this point is is kind of like these sheets of of snow are like carving off one by one. It's kind of all happening in parallel, right? So the entire glacier like facing downhill is these like picture like what happens if you take like a mar- a chocolate bar like a Mars bar or something and you bend it and there's all the shards of chocolate along the top. Yeah. And that's kind of like what the ice is. It's all these parallel lines of chocolate with That's a really good analogy. holes yeah. underneath. Would, would a bread loaf also be an analogy as far as bread loaves that's Actually, opened up? Actually, yeah, bread loaf. Bread loaf works too. Like if you get a loaf of sliced bread and you kind of like, I guess, drape it over a corner. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, and then you see how all of the loaves kind of, or all the slices all peel apart. I've been yeah. trying to think of an analogy for this, for this podcast for like a whole week. But yeah, the bread loaves one is like the one I'm going to roll with. Right? Okay. Yeah. So like yeah, the, in the bottom, we're like kind of going along the tops of these like slices of bread, but each slice of bread is the size of like the side of a large house at least. Right? So how do you get from one bread loaf to the, or one slice of bread to the next? So you stood on top of a slice and in front of you is like a massive chasm and behind you is a massive chasm. But if you walk along the sides, then sometimes you find like a little bridge that goes across. That'll touch in between. That'll touch. Yeah. So you might like go yeah. down a bit and back up the other side. And then essentially you're like, you're like linking up all of these different uh, slices. Um, but then we got to this point that Nick's talking about now where there was no bridge. It's just you're on a slice and part of the next slice has totally collapsed and there's debris in the bottom which seems like it's kind of supported um and so we descended into the crevasse because it's the only it was the only way right to go we kind of went down into the crevasse onto this debris how do you descend we just we just stepped down it wasn't very far because the way these things are falling downhill to descend like uh into one you just walk, walk down a ramp but then when you meet the face of the next one, it's overhanging. It's like overhanging crevasse ice. 
And so, and we could see that if we could get on top of this thing, then we were kind of in. We could see that the next uh, section of the glacier looked pretty trivial, and this was like the last bread loaf, kind of bread slice, big. Yeah, yeah the this last was the barrier. Rest, this was yeah. the last barrier we had to get over. You know what I keep thinking when you you kept mentioning the labyrinth that it is to navigate this glacier I'm, I'm thinking what if you just had one i have a tiny drone right it weighs nothing really I, the battery does but you fly that thing up get get a couple aerial shots kind of get your own pattern maybe that would help i don't know if it would <laughs> yeah or, or possibly a yeah. 15 samsung 20 times zoom camera <laughs> yeah we had uh, we had our own little aerial reconnaissance from across the valley but that's right um, we'll get into that yeah yeah but so, the uh, uh, the First thing that we try, so like, let me try and set the scene here in the bottom of this, or maybe midway down this crevasse. We didn't know how deep it went. Um, we're still in this rubble, and to our like left is a huge sort of tottering slice of snow. It's like I don't know, like a meter wide, two meters wide. Yeah, I'd say I'd say a meter wide, and it's like by it's like one of these slices of bread has kind of split in two, and it's got it's just kind of perched in the middle. Yeah, and it's like in the middle of this of this chasm, yeah. Yeah. And it's on like maybe... On one side, there's a bottomless hole. On the other side, there's a bottomless hole. On our... It's just beside our plug of that we're standing on of debris. Mm. And it's like this freestanding, tottering wall just to our left. You, you look at it and you're like, how is that thing standing up? And then in front of us is the wall that we want to try and... The ice wall that we want to try and get up. And then I can't remember, didn't we? Must not have looked right. I think it just like ended. Um, yeah, something like that. I don't. And, I don't remember what it looked like. And so, there, first but. point of attack was to try and climb this like steep ice wall above us because we had uh, a couple pickets. And we had ice screws, and it, we placed a screw, and like the, the ice was like good enough that it would take screws. And these are these tubular things that you screw into the ice to, pr- for the ice climbers use. You screw them into the ice, and then they you can clip your rope to them. A picket is, well, picket's just a big bit of metal that you hammer into snow that hopefully will hold you. But it's a little bit more dicey than the ice screws are because the ice is quite a bit denser. It can hold uh, hold the load a lot better. Yeah. So I figured that as long as I can protect this thing, then I can climb it safely. And the screw, I placed a screw and I felt like tested the screw. Like I, you know, we're not going for a free ascent here where you're not waiting your gear. So I was like yarding on this screw, like putting my weight on it. I was like, okay, great. This kind of rotten snow is good enough to hold ice screws. Um, so I started like leading this kind of steep ice slash rotten snow wall. And it was going really, really well. I think I got about like five or six meters up off the yeah. deck. You were maybe a body length from the top, as I recall. Yeah, and then yeah, about a body length from the top, uh, the snow consistency changed from something that I could climb with my axes and crampons to like slush, and there was like a a full meter of overhanging slush above my head, and I was like trying to put my axe in, and like it would just go in and scrape loads of ice into my face, and I was trying to like. I didn't know what to do. And I was like, well, maybe I can kind of get up there, but I feel like I'm going to fall off if I do. So I like tried to place some of these snow pickets into it, like hammered these two snow pickets in. And then I didn't believe that they would hold me. So I 
downclimbed the whole thing uh, uh, so that I could like test whether these snow t- snow pickets were any good. Like, and then like got Nick to take in all the slack out of the rope. And then I like jumped and like put all my full body weight onto the rope. And these snow pickets just like came careening, boop, boop. like came careening yeah. back down towards me. And I was like, right, well, I'm glad I didn't test that with my, with my body. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm higher up. And, and so, also remember, this is, at this point, it's maybe 2 or 3 a.m. Yeah. It's still pitch black out there. We're doing everything by the light of our headlamps. And we're just, yeah, we're, we're kind of trying to problem solve our way around this wall. And it's pitch black. Mm. And we decide that perhaps trying to climb up an overhanging snow slope with the consistency of meringue is maybe not the best idea. Yeah, so I was feeling pretty disheartened at this point because, like, I thought that that was the only way. But then, like, st- step back, we cleaned the pitch, and I think in my head I was like, oh, we got to turn back. But then I saw that there was this other option, just uh, of... Um, this like freestanding wall that I described just in front of it. It looked like there was like this scary drop, but I already knew from climbing this wall that the snow quality was like uh, pretty firm at that, at that level. So I was able to traverse left um, in between the, the, the uphill side, if you like, of, of this, uh, this freestanding wall and, and the wall that we've been trying to climb. And I did this traverse left for about 10 meters. And then I was able to like work my way up the series of thin ramps. So let me, I want to make sure people can picture this. You know, I know, I know you're miming it on YouTube, but you're in between the bread loaves. You're against the overhanging part, this last wall that you need to get over. And you're traversing along this final bread loaf, the overhanging part and trying to get over on this ramp yeah our goal is to get on top of this like final slice of bread right yeah and these things are like what how tall were they nick i always exaggerate I but like, i feel like they were 10 meters i i'd say that's about right like eight to ten meters yeah like some somewhere yeah. around there it's like i it's placed like small when i was trying to climb this one i placed like five screws and then two picks yeah. so yeah it's, it's gonna it's be like, something it, like you know, yeah like yeah. that kind of yeah but then but because this was pretty serious and we both had this is a multi-day endeavor. So we had these pretty decent sized packs. And so when Mike's trying this, he's left his backpack down there with me and we're going to be pulling it up on the end of one of the two ropes he's tied into. And that's going to matter in a second because when he goes sideways and then up this ramp and gets onto the top, the way that he's going to need to pull over is he flicks the flicks the rope sideways to get it so you can pull it, pull the backpack straight up, and then mm-hmm. I'm going to follow his route to get up. You're going to follow the, the traverse route? Yeah, I'm going to go yeah. sideways, and then I'm going to go up the ramp, rather so, than try okay. and climb up the face. Yeah. Mike's doing the traverse, and the objective is he gets to the top, and then vertically he can just hoist the backpacks eventually uh, mm-hmm. straight up. All right, got it. Yeah. And really, that traverse section wasn't... We weren't, like, protecting each other, really. It was just the... I don't know why we stayed tied in. We were already tied in, right? It would have made yeah. no sense to like have to untie. So we just yeah. like, I traversed like maybe 10 meters left along these like ledges and bits of climbing. It was quite insecure, but it was definitely doable. 
and then managed to climb up this next series of ramps and then found that I was on top of this, like, this slice, this, like, on top of this crevasse that I'd been aiming to get on top of. And I was like, oh, great, sweet. Nick, we're we in. We made it. We made it. And started to, like, walk along the ledge, of, like, the edge of this, uh, along the top of this slice. So back towards above Back towards above Nick. Me. So the ropes now are going, like, 10 metres left and then, like, 8 metres up and then starting to go 10 metres right again. And, like, because of the consistency of that snow on the top layer, the ropes, like, like I wasn't really aware until I felt a tug on my harness, but the ropes had started to cut into the very top layer of the crevasse that I was walking on. And in my head, I was like, well, this is, like, pretty inconvenient, like, definitely i'm feeling i was like feeling pretty i was feeling very very exposed and very insecure uh because of the nature of this like falling down like beast of nature basically and i was on there i was like well i i I was like the, the traverse and then the climbing and then the traverse back i was actually not like you know whooping with delight probably i was like pretty on edge and I didn't want to walk all the way back to where the ropes had, like, cut into the top of the snow. So instead, I, like, started to try and, like, cut the ropes, like, pull on the ropes to go through the snow that they were. Remember, this whole thing overhangs at the top. So he doesn't want to walk out on the overhang because that may have terrible consequences. But that the ropes are cutting through this kind of eyebrow at the top of the at the top there. Yeah, he's yeah. cutting off the roof. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. And it's like, I don't know like what volume of snow I was like cutting through, but I uh, managed to successfully cut like uh, the ropes through this, uh, the, the top of this crevasse that I was standing on. And then the ropes kind of popped out and I was like, oh, sweet. That worked. I was about to carry on. And then I was like, ah, oh. and I don't know what it was, but something compelled me to kick that block off. I have no idea why I did it to this day. I kicked the block off and it slid down and it like landed at the base of that big wobbly, like story high wall of bread. And then the entire thing just started to like rumble and it fell. Like I remember like this silence, this kind of like silence slipping of the snow and it was like movement, like masses of movement. Yeah, the entire wall that we'd been, like, teetering around before just, like, collapsed into the bottom of this crevasse. And as soon as I saw the first bit of movement happening, I was like, oh, crap, I'm going to die. I was convinced, right, that the one that I was standing on was going to die. And it was overhanging over Nick. This whole thing collapsed perhaps an arm's reach away from me and Mm. down at the bottom. And I could feel the vibrations from it falling through my whole body. It just, it shook the glacier. In those fractions of a second, what's racing through your mind? Um, it, it was almost like a bit of detachment. I was looking at this eyebrow of snow that Mike's kicking off and it falls off and it hits this thing and I'm almost seeing it in going in slow motion as not a bit of it came towards me. It pretty well collapsed straight down into the hole that it was on, that it was in. And I almost felt like I was sitting there, like, looking at this, just stunned. And I couldn't, 
really form any kind for a little bit afterwards I was just like I wasn't entirely sure what had just happened and if it had just happened and nothing had gone wrong like nothing had hurt me nothing had like the ropes hadn't been cut the the ice bridge I was on hadn't collapsed it was all like fine but also terrifying I'd like to know what people feel in those moments of if they say they have a chance to react, what is their natural mechanism? Because you don't really know until you're in that situation. I always mention I hate people that are, say, watching a movie and say some character has like a cowardly moment and they're like, oh, I can't believe that guy I would have never done that. But you don't know until you're in that moment. Right. And I feel like there's different types of people. There's people that freeze in these moments of stress or, or danger there's people that flee there's people that you know fight or or try to have take an action to mitigate or extinguish this situation what do you say was your current state I, I know there wasn't much you could do per se but you know what was your reaction to be honest a bit of a combination i i thought i better take some rope in in case might fall in case the shakes might might loose. So I pulled in a bit of rope and then I realized that all of this was coming down towards me. But I was attached to an ice screw on the wall of the crevasse beside me. So I couldn't really move. I was clipped in. And so I just, I, I froze after taking a bit of rope and was like, all right, I'm going to hold this if Mike falls off and I'm just going to stand here. And I stood there and nothing happened. And then when the dust, then the dust all settled and yeah. Mm. Yeah. I went through this moment of like, okay, this is certain death to, yeah. Like, so you felt like the, the, the ground shake, right? And you know that you're standing on this top. You've seen one tottering pillar fall down. You know that you're standing way up on top of another tottering pillar. You kind of like fully expect like the one that you're standing on to, to fall. All this is happening like over to Nick's left. Like, yeah, close close to your left, Nick. Yeah. But like, it's not like it's not like left. a drop like bomb on top there. of you. I f- like I felt like it was like over far enough over to your left that like I wasn't like kicking something down on you. No. It was like I think I was like the reason I kicked that thing off was like I'd expected it to slide off and I didn't want it to slide off when I wasn't looking. I wanted to be like ready for whatever happened. And I thought like, you know, like I want to like make sure that nothing takes me by surprise. But then I was not expecting, uh, you know, for that entire wall to like, just go like toppling down when I did that. Um, yeah, for me, that feeling was like, this like dumbfounded realization that like the thing that I was standing on was still standing up. Yeah. And then we kind of called to each other and we're like, you're still here. Yep. You're still here. Yep. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And then we had like a quick decision to make. Hey, we were like, well, yeah, that was like the closest call that I've ever had. Probably, and uh, I think me too. We might have been in the same place. Yep. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. We had in your thing. life, that was the closest near-death experience you've ever had. Yeah, well, yeah, this big, well, multiple, 
multiple ton block of ice falling down there-ish, right beside me. And I guess, Mike, in your case, this the possibility of this big multiple ton block of ice that you're currently standing on doing the same. Mm. And there was then there was also, because the rope was running beside it, the possibility that one of these could have fallen and just sliced the rope in two or yanked Mike off the top just by, by the tension. So these types of incidents tend to change the dynamics of the mission to say the least. And, you know, there's different types of people. Some people are so mission driven that and objective driven that they say, Hey, all right, this is a risk that occurred, but now we're through it. Let's move on. And then there's other people that assess it and think, well, no, now the circumstances change. We're no longer in the headspace to move forward. Where are you guys currently standing? Well, yeah, I think we pretty much quickly decided that, yeah, going back to camp might be like yeah. the best and most sensible and safest option at this point. In the immortal words of Monty Python, run away! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. There wasn't right. like much... Yeah, I'm not a particularly summit-driven person. Like, I'll go until it kind of makes sense. And like, it just didn't make sense anymore, right? This place here was like moving visibly a lot <laughs> yeah we kind of realized we were in the wrong place there yeah and then afterwards we kind of took a look back and realized that actually it was it was over zero the entire time what we've been mentioning before about climbing in the coldest part of the night well it was late enough in the year that it never quite got that cold it never got cold enough to freeze everything in place while we were up there. And so it was always a little bit closer to the edge than we'd anticipated. And that just made us realize that we were actually, that we probably made the right call hmm. to leave. So back through the labyrinth, you went? Yep. Yeah, back down and we'd had the, Luck, since we'd just been there an hour or two before, it wasn't like we were like the other group who had to kind of refine a way through. We were able to just follow our footprints, follow the holes that our ice tools made in the, the ice to climb back down and then hike back to where we'd started about five or six hours before. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool that you were saying that you guys crossed a different party and they're basically your warning of all right, it's too late. Turn, yeah. turn back now. It's like that, those pirate stories mm. turn back now or forever. Seal yeah. the doom. <laughs> they were pretty encouraging. They were, they were as encouraging as they could be. Right? Like, uh, they were like, yeah, we think that it might be over, but go on, give it a go. Yeah. Bring up, bring our picket back. If you can, if you found, if you find our picket that we left behind as an anchor, then, uh, we'll give you a case of beer for it or something. But <laughs> all right. So let's, get into i i don't want our podcast to last decades so let's get into a, a different part of this journey a shocking part of this journey huh huh that's a dad joke for you oh yeah oh 
So you're referring to, yeah, like, I guess, like, a bit later in the trip, like, the weather changed. We got some kind of forecasts that there was going to be high pressure and that there would be thunderstorms in the afternoons. And so we picked some slightly easier objectives and... One of them was called Dragon's Back Ridge. Is that right, Nick? I think it's Dragon Tail Peak. Dragon Tail yeah, something Peak. like yeah. that. And it's just like beautiful, like alpine ridge line. Uh, it was like it was like a a couple hours approach from the hut. Like minor crevasse hazards on the way, and then some like ad, like assez difficile or per difficile. Like that's like an alpine grade of uh, of rock climbing, which. Not especially difficult rock climbing, just beautiful granite, mm. um, really solid, and we just we were just romping up it. It was yeah. it was just a blast. Like we had we, ropes with us, but we had them as like an option. I think most of the yeah. time we were unroped. Um, All the time, I think. Mike, did you share with me? Basically, you decided to choose this mission as kind of uh, okay. We had that one close call. Let's do an easier type of day. I can't remember the order of it, but that fits the story pretty well. Yeah. 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 And I'd say like something in that kind of something in that kind of thing. We had, we had one rest day after we got back to the hut and then we had a couple of days of fooling about on stuff that was right there. There's a peak called claw peak directly above the hut that we did some stuff on. We did a couple of first ascents that are mentioned in that article, that Canadian Alpine journal article. And then we, we, we kind of were like, all right, well, we'll start poking our noses out a little bit more, but nothing too big right now. Like something that's a little bit further afield. We don't want to just get trapped in this one little area right by the hut. We've got an entire mountain range to explore. And at this point, Shira and Mike had actually moved their camp uh, a bit closer to this Dragonhead Peak as well. And I think we passed their tent, didn't we, on the approach? Yeah, yeah, we saw it. And So um, we <clears throat> knew that there were thunderstorms in the afternoon, so we got like a reasonably early start and started going along this ridge. And like looking over to the left, which would be um, to the south, uh, we could see like this beautiful, beautiful sunny day develop into these like little tiny, tiny clouds. And I know from like my experiences climbing in Chamonix, like... Those beautiful sunny days when you get these little tiny, tiny billowing clouds turn into really, really like bad days. Like they like those little clouds, they get bigger and bigger and bigger, and then like they turn into thunderstorms. So as soon as we saw these like clouds developing, we both knew uh, that this was like a timer that we needed to be aware of. So from and we kind of pushed it a little bit. I think we can't. We were like, can we get to this next notch? Yeah, we can. Can we carry on past this notch? I think we did, and we carried on to the yeah. next notch, by which time it was obvious that there was going to be a thunderstorm. Like within Yeah, the we next could see of- those little puffy clouds had become, like, not thunderheads per se, but they'd definitely grown in size, and we're like, there's something coming. Let's mm. maybe not be up here on the middle of this ridge rising out of a flat glacier. Flat glacier. Mm. Like, we're right now in the worst place Worst that possible we could be. place. Yeah. Worst on possible a ridge. place. Like, we are the highest things in the range, and we're carrying a lot of metal. Yeah. So it's not where you want to be. Um, I've read stories, like, um, <clears throat> read, like, Andy Kirkpatrick's blog and stuff like that, and, like, mountaineering books of people getting caught in thunderstorms in the Alpine, and apparently, like, your gear 
starts to like ring like a like a hive of wasps. Oh, it does. I've I've had that. I've experienced that here in the Rockies, just above Canmore. It's mm. like it's this weird humming buzz, and it it sounds like nothing. First of all, and you're like, oh, what? I wonder what that could be. But it got to the point where I heard the Cliff Bar wrapper in my hand was crinkling, wow. and I was looking at it, and it wasn't crinkling. And I'm like, there's something screwy here. And on that same summit, from a different route, this um, this scrambling party from Canmore had come up, and one of them was a was a Czech guy, and he had hair down to his shoulders. I turned to turned around as I was hearing this odd humming that I couldn't quite place. I looked at him, and all that hair was just on end, like full full afro, and. And you could put your hair, hand up in the air, and you could feel a resistance to it. You could feel the the static in the air, and it, so it's a very what do you real mean? thing. Like you, you try to raise your hand, and you feel a resistance. Uh, you raise your hand, and you can raise it fine, but you move your fingers, and you can feel there's a force on them that's not mm-hmm. that's not normally there. It's like you're pushing on something. But what you're pushing on is the static, is the charge in the air. It's it, it was surreal. But that aside, it 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 happens sometimes in the Alpine in the dry, cold mountain air, with that's gotten really charged. And we didn't wait for that point. We decided that it's um down. Wait, you say you hold on, hold on, hold on. You say it happens. Like is this? This is pretty cat like it's not casual, but it's a pretty regular occurrence for mountaineers. Do many mountaineers um, I die? Say from it's, this? it's regular, but it's not necessarily like the, there's um, another range that Mike mentioned earlier. A lot of Squamish climbers go to is a place called the Bugaboos, and there it's it's a known occurrence. Places like you should be off climbs by l- mid to late afternoon. Because there's a chance that there might be lightning storms. Yeah, it's, it's the same um, in the Dolomites and in Chamonix yeah. as well. Yeah, in the these, summer, these if high you go alpine climbing in the summer, then yeah, quite often if the, if the, if the weather conditions are right, you could have like weeks of thunderstorms every afternoon. Yeah, but then it'll clear up the next day and be totally fine. But there's it's not usually fatal just because it's a recognized hazard. But there are there are legends about it, and one particular route in the bugaboos with one of my favorite names is a route called the young men on fire because these young men got um, to the top of their mountain the top of uh, one of the hauser spires on the top of their route as a lightning storm hit and i believe one of them got hit both of them survived but what does that do to your body to survive a lightning a strike I don't especially want to find out. I have no idea. I'm not going to get a strict by lightning. It's not one of my intentions. <laughs> I bet it. I bet it really hurts. You know. I think it can stop your heart, and I think it can yeah. give you severe burns, Vince. If you're wondering, yeah. like, this is what I think is that if the exit point is like uh, small, then you're going to have like such a higher voltage. 
and it'll like burn you even more. But if you're like grounded to the ground, it'd probably be like less bad. That's a guess. Yeah. I think they showed us EMT uh, pictures of lightning strike victims in EMT school, and they have literally these scars. It looks like a lightning bolt on their body of where mm. the current goes through. That's a pretty wow. cool battle scar. Yeah. So I'm like pretty fascinated by the the physics of it and. Yeah, I've always had like a big love for like physics since I studied it at like college. And uh, like, yeah, for me, like reading these stories of like, and hearing Nick tell me as well about like what happens to people in thunderstorms was like, oh man, like I really want to like experience that firsthand. Like, and like, and not get struck by lightning. Uh, yeah. So I had this like real kind of interest in uh, in, in experiencing that for sure. But anyway, like we're still on the ridge at the moment, hey? Yeah, I think so. We're just we're just going down off the ridge because it's Yeah, and we thought we could just drop down down. quickly off this ridge, didn't we? We were like, oh yeah, let's just go down there. We ended up like having to like go over this Bergschrun, which like when at the time, like I was pretty stressed out because there was a storm coming in and then we had a Bergschrun that I hadn't anticipated. Yeah. Bergschrun for non-climbing viewers, it's the spot where the glacier pulls away from the mountain. So there's the the snow that's on the snow and ice that's on the mountain, and the glacier is kind of pulling away down the down the slope, and it makes this great. It's a crevasse. It's just a particular kind of crevasse. Mm. It's like and the, first, it's, the first one, isn't it? It's the first one, mm. and but we didn't anticipate there would be one, so yeah. we had to. It was kind of hidden. Go over it. Mm-hmm. It was a sneaky. You one. couldn't see it from the ridge. Sneaky road yeah. trend. So, I, I don't know. How did we get over that thing? We made a we made a V thread anchor in the ice. Yeah. So that's where you use one of these tubular ice screws I mentioned before, and you drill these two holes so that it makes an like kind of an A shape or a V shape in the ice, and you thread some rope through that, and then you tie that off, and then you can repel off of that uh, that rope and repel down into over the crevasse and we were able to uh, to make one of these because the ice was good enough. Yeah, and they always say that these things are pretty solid, but when you look at it for the first time, it, from an outsider's perspective, it looks sketchy as shit to me. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. yeah. All right, so, yeah, but, yeah, yeah I want to hear about the lightning. So we get down, we go over the glacier, we get back to the hut, and we're, we managed to make it back to before any kind of significant weather hit. And this this hut, it's almost like a, it's clad in metal. It's like this aluminum cl- cladding over a uh, kind of, not quite a, like almost like a rounded peak. But we get there and we're like, we're sitting inside and we're like waiting for the weather to come out. And we were actually having that conversation about like, oh, I've heard that you hear these weird sounds when there's a thunderstorm. Like, yeah. We're actually in the middle of that conversation when I'm like, Nick, is your Nalgene, like, fastened up properly? Like, I can hear it, like, yeah. fizzing. And he's like, no, man, like, this is my Nalgene making this fizzing noise. I was like, it is, I can tell. It's like, that's the sound of, like, some hot liquid in an Nalgene. It's depressurizing. It's, it's, like, fizzing and bubbling. He's like, no, it's definitely, no. look, took the lid off, put the lid back on. I was like, dude, that's definitely your Nalgene. Like, and, uh... Yeah, that was like that was like the first like in- the instance that like I realized that there was something funny going on with the with the yeah. the charge there. Yeah. 
But then we decided because we didn't want to just sit in the hut and just wait for whatever it was to pass. We were like, well, let's, let's go outside and see. Let's see, has the storm come? Has the storm passed? What's going on? And we, we go outside and, well, so, yeah, it's like it's clouded over, which is quite a bit different from how it's been till then. And just kind of looking around, it doesn't seem like there's any lightning bolts striking anywhere. Until I, and then I turn around and look at Mike. And his hair was starting to, starting to stick up a little bit. And you could definitely see some, there was some light, there was some electricity going on. Mm, yeah. And like the thing, you, you could like hear this like sound coming from the very top of the hut there. And yeah, it was like clear that that sound that I'd heard, um, that I thought was this Nalgene bottle depressurizing was actually like this kind of like clicking sound coming from like the very, very highest point on the hut. And it was like, yeah, it was this kind of like buzzing sound happening there. And yeah, I like felt my hair and like went to feel my hair. And like, as I put my hands towards my hair, I felt this like repelling force. And I was like, that's really weird. It was like what Nick was describing before where like you feel this resistance and you feel like, uh, yeah, this kind of your, you can't like, you can get your hands closer to your face, but it's, there's a resistance there. It's like your hands are magnets and your face is like the, the, the same pole of the magnet and you put in your hands towards and they repel. I can feel it coming in the air. <laughs> we had a talk and like we said, well, where do you think the best place to be is? Like in the hut or out of the hut? And we decided that in the hut was the best place to be. Oh, we figured it's, it's metal over wood and it's almost certainly been hit by lightning before and the wood hasn't caught fire. Mm. So if the wood hasn't caught fire, then it's probably safe for us to be in there. Yeah. And when we stepped inside the hut, uh, my hair like just like went down again. And I stepped out and it like went up again. Stepped out. <laughs> stepped in and it went down again. It was really weird. It was like there was this shield around the hut. There must have been some kind of like shield inside of... Well, the it was the metal. The like the, that's what the metal. I thought would it was do just a that. strip of metal on the top. Was it the whole roof that was? Metal no, the whole the whole oh, roof okay. was covered right. in it, so right. that would have shielded it. But yeah, so that's yeah. what was going on there. Mm. Yeah, I got a picture here for folks tuning in on YouTube. Yeah, it's a cute little hut. A Himmelsbach style hut. Yeah. yeah. If anyone yeah. knows what the Himmelsbach style hut is, it's got like a domed roof and then square front and back. Yeah. Pointy tip. Yeah. Mm. We're kind of in the hut there, and we decided that the hut was the safest place to be. But then, like, I I was really kind of compelled to to go out there again, and, and uh, so I like I, I looked around and I saw this like s- set of boulders where like I wouldn't be the highest thing in the environment. I didn't want to get struck by lightning, right? But I still wanted to like feel this charge, and so I like, went out there and like crouched out, down like in between these boulders. And I figured I was like close enough to the hut that if anything struck, it would like strike the hut. And uh, I don't know, like it just seemed like the wrong thing to miss out on. So uh, I like was I like kind of like sat there for a bit, like watching this like thunderstorm develop and feeling like this charge like building, and like looking at the the sky there, and there was like these big big clouds, and then at some point, like my at one point, like. Um, I like looked looked across the valley and I saw this like flash of light. And it, the instant that I saw this flash of light, 
you know, like all of like my hair dropped down and the hut stopped buzzing. And like this like sensation that like I couldn't get my hands towards my face like went away. And I also was like, had to like, I don't know, I guess like some of my muscles like involuntary contracted as well. <laughs> and and then it was like, oh, that all happened at the same time, right? And then like, sort of like three or four seconds later, this like massive thunderclap. And I was still inside the hut at this point. And I just like, I could hear that. And I was like, whoa. And then like, I thought about it for a bit and I was like, what's happening here? And then I like thought about, like the you know what I've learned in like high school physics and stuff like what's happening there is like the sun's heating up the air and that's all rising and and then you, you that's all like all the electrons are getting stripped off of the cloud and like the lower level of the cloud has got these like positive ions and the top level of the cloud has got these like negative like the loads and loads of electrons up there like a dearth like a, a lack of electrons on the lower level and because the lower level there has got these like no electrons that's like pushing all of the electrons off of the earth's surface so the entire of the earth's surface now has like doesn't have enough electrons which means that it's like positively charged right and then you're looking across this entire landscape and like it really opened my eyes when when this thunderbolt struck, right? It's not just like the point where the lightning happens where there's like electrons missing or there's like a charged surface. It's the entire landscape underneath this entire cloud system. You've got this like mass of earth which is dying to get electrons. You're part of it. And then the mountain next to you is also like dying to get electrons. And then the next mountain peak is also dying to get electrons. And everything across this landscape has had all of its le- electrons stripped away. Hey, I'm actually going to have to duck out here, guys. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for, thanks for having me here. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Right. Well, Peace. It's been a, been a pleasure. Sweet. Um, I love that he dropped out during your meteorology section. <laughs> yeah, I know. Really. Yeah, like when you get happened. started on this stuff, it's a good time to leave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like when we were out the other day skiing and your friend, you start, what were you telling us about? The cornices? I, I forget no, what you were telling us No, it was basalt. Was it Yeah, Lily was like, are you trying to describe how basalt cracks? I just zoned out and I was like, blah, 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 blah. And then I got to come back and you were like, still talking about basalt. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. We were both just like staring through you and then tuned back oh, in. Man. Like, oh, yeah. Still- I was actually paying attention, but it was, it, that was funny. It's funny that you tuned out. But anyway, yeah, let's get back to the lighting. I, I do want to know, like, are you seeing anything visually when this is happening aside from your hair? No, like the only visual is, is the lightning bolt itself. Yeah. My point about this, this charge difference here is that this, this lightning bolt could occur at any point across the landscape. You're looking out over this Alpine mountain range and you're feeling this like sense of charge building up in you. And at some point that charge is going to get strong enough that like the electricity can like re like break through the permittivity of free space and electricity can just flow through the air back up to the cloud. Um, and this charge difference is, it's in you and you can feel it, but it's also in every bit of the landscape around you. And that was what was amazing to me, right? Um, was that I would look over the valley 
and like this is like five kilometers away like three to five kilometers in all directions you've got these like massive massive peaks and like that lightning bolt might just like strike from like one of these peaks to the cloud and that event releases charge from where i am like five kilometers away and suddenly like i don't feel this like this force anymore and my hair drops down and i can't hear this buzzing and i just found that so cool right that you're like seeing this like thunder this thunderbolt which is related to what you were just feeling instantly like all these things change the speed of sound is 340 meters per second so if it was like three kilometers away i just keep like when you say it comes from you i keep thinking of the lion king song like it lives in you it lives in <laughs> me <laughs> it's a while since i've seen that movie but yeah like yeah if it's like a, a kilometer away then it takes like a second to get to you right that sound yeah anyway i found that really 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 interesting it seems like a a pretty riveting an electrifying journey that you had out there. Um, and, and I know you're not even sharing technically like the most, uh, I guess, challenging portion of the the journey, which, what did you mention? It was the Sarah 2 getting up there. That was sick, yeah. I, again, I don't want this to turn into a three-hour long podcast, but like, why was that like the highlight in a way? It was like you were living on a, on the climb, right? So we, we decided to take it like enough stride. We took three days to climb this thing. So we had to have two sleeps on the mountain. It's like the reason that there was a ridge in the first place is because the ridge was the strongest point of the, the, the like the highest quality rock. And then the valleys in between all the ridges are like choss. Mm. We had to like make our beds out of this like kind of garbage dump of rock. And so we'd spend like an hour before bed each each time we slept, like trying to make a sleeping platform that we could like be comfortable on. And I also remember at one point, like when we were descending down to one of, towards one of these notches and with, with like when when i say like going to down towards a notch it's like the distances you're talking about are probably like i don't know like 500 meters or something like that whoa yeah five 500 meters wide across this like feature that you might call a notch are you rappelling on gear that you leave or you're trying to wrap the rope around some kind of no you kind of like roped together simul climbing um, and when it looks like you might fall and die, you'd put like a sling around one of these big blocks. Gotcha. Um, it's like kind of drops cascading like on your right. I remember this one point actually where below us was like a 500 meter drop into just more of this like just nothingness. And I remember like kind of traversing along and placing slings around blocks and everything looked like it might not fall down. But then... The ledge that I was walking along just just like fell out from underneath me into this like 500 meter drop. And I was like holding on to these two like blocks. And like luckily those things didn't fall away. And I was just like kind of dangling there looking down over this huge drop. Like thinking, okay, I guess I just got to keep on going. Like got my feet back on something and kept on going along this series of like ledges. And, and then Nick had to follow that as well. Wait, so the whole thing that you're basically standing on falls through and you manage to hold on with your hands. Yeah. That's that's some Hollywood <laughs> stuff, first of all. But secondly, <laughs> what goes on through your head when something like that happens? You know, when shit hits the fan, are you one of those guys that's calmer? Like I was in that. I mean, yeah, like I guess it's like you don't really have time to panic, right? It's kind of like a no-brainer. You, you're hanging on. Your feet are dangling in space. The things that you're hanging on to haven't fallen off. And like, it's not that you're on crimps, you know, you're on like pretty big jugs. You're just like, you know, just kind of keep going. 
I feel like most human beings, if they were faced with that predicament, the fact that if they don't hold on to those those jugs, which are larger holds, if they don't hold on, they're going to die. They are going to stay calm in that moment. Would you agree with that? Or do you think some people would just freak out and somehow let go or panic too much where they can't move or something? And then I have no idea, cars. man. That sounds like an interesting experiment, though. Like, yeah. I don't know how people like I don't think my mom would like do so well in that situation. That's exactly I what I was thinking. I was thinking of my I think mom. She'd freeze. I've seen it. I've seen her actually. We went to this like rope course. It was called Ziptrex. Not ri- not Ziptrex, but like something like that. And like you, you end up like kind of climbing on these like nets and things. And I just remember like she got onto this net and she was just like, she just froze like this. She like wouldn't move. So I think people would do that, you know, but like I've been doing a bunch of rock climbing. So, But was she freezing? Was she on a rope? Yeah. So there was a backup is what I'm saying. Like her yeah. life, maybe in the back of her mind, she knew that she had the ability to panic because somebody hopefully had her back, even though she might not have felt like that uh, on certain level. I feel like deep down she knew there was a backup. But if there's no backup in the situation, more or less that you're in. Well, there was because I was roped yeah, to Nick, rope. you know, yeah, yeah. and I'd been placing like runners on the on the way. So I've been like putting slings around like blocks and things to protect me should anything happen. Because I was aware, right, that this stuff is falling down. So I would like find the stuff that isn't falling down and put the protection in that. But then I'd be climbing on the stuff that was falling down. I don't know. I get that's a, that's an interesting question. I'm personally a terrible soloist. So like rock climbing mm-hmm. without a rope. I don't think I'm designed for it because every time I do it and it gets hard, I start to try to get out of it faster because I'm you know, arguably panicking or, or yeah. not wanting to be in that situation. And I'm so I'm, I'm thinking, oh, it, it's gotten harder. It's sketchy now. I want to get out of here and I move quickly, which is not the whole mindset and how you're supposed to do climbing without a rope. You're supposed to think of it methodically. It's a whole process. You're always in control. And so I suppose, yeah, I suppose some people are, are different. My tactic is evade, but keeping yeah. it together as much as I can. I guess I've felt that before. Like, I, I think if you've like got an adrenaline going through you and you're in this kind of like fight or flight mode, I don't think that's a good place to be uh, when you're kind of rock climbing. Yeah, it's good to like um, condition yourself to be ready like not ready but like if you've got this like a massive massive burst of adrenaline then you're not going to be as focused on like making good decisions you kind of like want to try and be able to stay calm when things happen yeah that's cool so you that your feet give out what goes on for you in those situations you just keep it together you're like whoa but just keep moving forward I just remember it feeling like the whole section, like even though like we're like talking about really loose rock, I just remember it feeling really awesome, right? Because you've got these sick cliffs like above you, sick cliffs to your side. Now you've got like a massive drop as well to look at. You're like, oh, sick. So yeah, for you it was cool. Bit, it was like it was like the, the the ground dropped away, but I was like, it's like just that's just one of your points of contact, and the thing that I was holding on to stayed, right? I don't know. I feel like I am afraid of heights, and I would. I don't know what I would do. I don't know. I'd probably keep it together. Uh, who knows? Who knows? I'm not in that situation. Now, let me ask you a real serious question. When you get developed in certain fields, such as rock climbing or any kind of adventure sport, eventually you start to find different 
struggles and different challenges that you know that the average or like the a beginner wouldn't necessarily know what and think about this one but what do you think is a challenge of a mountaineer once you you gather the experience and the knowledge oh man it's so difficult because firstly i don't see myself as like an accomplished like mountaineer or climber i see people around me as being accomplished but i don't have that perception of myself but I do recognize that there's things that I've learned that other people haven't learned yet. And it's more like more like towards the rock climbing side of things, but like you have like an expectation. Like like if you don't if you don't keep check of your of your ego, you can have this like expectation of how, how you should be able to perform. And and that can grow. And then when you're going through periods where naturally you're kind of not performing at a level that you used to be at this expectation of what you should be able to do is, is, is kind of in the, in the mirror against how you're actually performing. And then you can like end up feeling bad about yourself. And I think that that's like a, a lesson that I've learned, like through, through climbing is to g- try and genuinely not have like an expectation of what you should be able to do. Mm. Yeah, it makes it a lot more fun if you don't like preload a goal with, with like an expected outcome. Like if everything that you go into, is like, an investigation rather than an expression it's way more fun and way more healthy you can just go and find out whether or not you would send a route instead of like going to go and send a route mm. does that make sense yeah and there's one thing i learned in leadership in Knowles, and i f- forget specifically the terms but it's basically the difference between somebody that's objective driven versus process yeah dude it's process driven like process goals versus like end goals that's where it's at man if you can Mm -hmm. like be motivated by things that are happening in the moment like how you're placing your feet and how you are like shifting your balance and are you trying like maximal 100 percent right now like that is so much more of a way to to go through life than like okay i want to climb 8a or i want to summit like denali or you know like these things, like if you have an end goal, the fruition of that goal, like, is instantaneous, right? You summit Denali, and then you're like, you go down again. Or you like climb 8A, you get to the change, you clip the rope, it happens, and then it goes away. Whereas if you're like focusing, right, on trying as hard as you can and being your best possible self, that's something that's with you right now, you know, all the time. And, it, and and so that's the difference there between process goal and end goal and trying to shift your motivations to be like more aligned with processes than ends mm. makes life so good. It's really, really, uh, it's been a, it's been a real game changer for me. If I'm to be devil's advocate, aren't objective goals good sometimes to get something accomplished and get it done? Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and I just haven't like found how to fit them in yet. Yeah. I just found out how to use process goals and that's, that's been good enough for me. You know, that's a little bit like what I was saying at the start of this podcast about like, how did we like plan the trip and get the the goals there? Like for me, it was more like, we're just going to go to this place and like experience the mountains. Um, rather than like, let's go and like, you know, back these particular routes. I, I wasn't like on a peak bagging journey. I was mm. just on like a, I want to go alpine climbing and I want the experience to be one of like doing some like cool things and 
you know, hanging out with Nick. And I perceive objective goals as potentially superficial happiness versus process goals as more being present and actually happy. It's like monetary happiness versus mm. inner happiness. I don't know. I just thought of that on the spot and I feel very smart for saying it. So thank you very yeah. much for listening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good job. Vince. I think that's, that's about it. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah. So Nick hinted at, there's a great photo and I'll put it up on YouTube here of you two on top of two tower spire. And it looks really epic. It looks mountaineer as hell. It's a sheer peak. And that's what <laughs> ended up in the journal, in the Canadian Alpine journal of 2020. If you guys want to check it out. What, who took that photo? So that photo was taken either by, I think it was either Jimmy Chin or Jaya Condon. So like the story is we were staying in the plumber hut and while we we were there, this second helicopter came in. We weren't expecting anyone else to, to arrive. And it was a team of alpinists from Squamish. I've forgotten one person, so I don't want to say the other two because then that person will I feel bad for like leaving them out. But the two photographers that came with it, Jai Condon and Jimmy Chin, and they were on this like professional photo shoot and the three alpinists from Squamish were like going and like going along ridges and kind of like yeah, kind of hamming it up for the camera. And You don't know who the climbers were? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Oh, who was it? But I forgot one of them, so I don't want to. Just say it, come on. So stop. I remember, because I know uh, Paul McSorley and... Kinley Aitken, and they were uh, two of the alpinists, and I can't remember the third one's name. Mm. Maybe there wasn't one. Oh, yeah, it was Mikey... Schaefer? Mikey Schaefer, that was who it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Famous people. So people not in the climbing community, Jimmy Chin's like the the name of climbing as far as the cinematography and the photography that's associated with climbing. He's the one that shot Free Solo, this other documentary called Maru. I think he's like in his 40s i took it one of his master class on photography which is kind of cool um yeah so the pretty much the biggest name in climbing photography and and a lot of outdoor sports is, is jimmy chin so that's cool so you guys got a shot by or a couple shots and i think that's what nick was talking to me about uh, at the start of the podcast he was saying i still haven't gotten those shots which is fair because he's so he's got a lot of pictures yeah yeah so that, so they'd come out for this photo shoot. i actually hadn't met or heard of any of these people um, before but yeah obviously jimmy had like uh, filmed free solo that year oh that was the same year yeah wow yeah like they, they were like doing these photo shoots and then every day a helicopter would come and pick up an sd card and then fly the sd card out are you sure they're using sd cards or are they backing it up with some other stuff or i don't know like flash drive sd card i don't know what they keep the photos on but it was like a you know like a flash memory storage device and there was a helicopter that came to collect one of those every day. It's crazy that <laughs> the guy who got an Oscar winning documentary that same year is out where you are at the same time. Like how, how is he managing his time? This guy's through the roof. It's, I guess yeah. he's got a lot of people working with him, a good team. So he's not like in the editing process per se. And he's not always involved in the, the free solo per se. But I don't know. I felt like the, the post-production of that took forever. And that's crazy that he's out there still like just a couple months after taking shots in the same area you are. Yeah, he's getting paid you know, to get these shots for, for a big company. So. so like amazing, right, to have like more company. We're in this team of four. We're getting a bit, little bit uh, cabin fever, I guess. Not really. It's just nice to meet other people. 
And we like meet these people who are like really experienced alpinists. We're like really cool to hang out with them and to get their stories and to hear Jimmy's stories of like filming free solo and that what that was like. What? So you guys shared a hut together? Yeah, yeah. We all like stayed. Um, they brought tents and stuff, but like, yeah, we all like stayed in the same place. And then um, me and Nick had been climbing this uh, this this route on this face that was like it looked like there was a sick off width. Uh, two pitch climb like within 300 meters of the hut and we like went to try that one day ended up like this off width was garbage and it's full of charts so there was a line on the right wall that was this like series of like shattered cracks with like fiddly gear yeah i led those two pitches and we made an anchor up there and came came down i would have graded that pitch e46a if it was in the in great britain which is what here i don't really know i guess it was like 11a or something I think I like think 11, I saw it in the the journal. I think he graded ten C. Yeah, it's, it's harder. I don't think it was ten C. I'm not sure. I, I, anyway, like if if anyone's gonna get sandbagged, then at least the gear is all right. <laughs> yeah, like this following day, like camera crew were there already, and they were taking their shots. We went like around the back of the same mountain, like descended a few hundred meters, and then climbed up like the the south side of this this same range, and we put up a new nine pitch route there, and the top of this route, like, as we were getting up there, like, we kind of thought we were at the top, and then we looked up, and there's these two, like, big pillars up there. We're like, oh, sick. We get to, like, top out on a summit pinnacle. So we, like, climbed up on top of this summit pinnacle, and then, like, the sun's kind of setting over in one direction, and, like, me and Nick are, like, stood on these, these, like, summit pinnacles, and then we hear this, like, whooping sound, and look over, and, like, we can hear, like, the people over at the plumber hut, like, shouting, like, Oh, go back up, go back up. And so we get back on the pinnacle. And uh, they're kind of like, the photographers are there like shooting their like photo shoot uh, in one direction. But then they look over and they see us like top out on this pinnacle. And it's just like sick, like photo shot. And they're like, oh, I don't know which way to point the, point the camera. Um, are, are they so, in the helicopter or at the hut? No, no, they were at the hut there. Okay, they had like okay. the cameras on tripods. and um, no Yeah, way. so they managed to get some really nice pictures of, of, of me and Nick on like one of our like... FA's out there. And so like, you guys posing in that photo? Because you guys look like true discoverers just pointing out at the horizon. Oh, yeah, man. We were up there for <laughs> good a good sort of 10 minutes before we got yes. bored. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, they were like waiting for the light to, to go right. But we were like, ah, oh, it'd be nice to get down before yeah. the sun goes down. We're getting a bit chilly as well. And yeah, so we, like, we, we, we got those pictures sent over. Um, like Nick said that he didn't have those pictures yet, but, but actually we do. Like. Oh, um, nice. I don't know I'll which ones them. he was talking about. There must be some others. But yeah, like I got like one of these pictures like printed onto canvas. And because these like these guys had like the the sickest cameras you can get, like I blew this thing up like um, kind of really, really big and like got it printed on the canvas for my mom. And she's like nice. got it on her wall. I've yeah, mentioned yeah. my mom a lot in this uh, podcast. But yeah, yeah she's a good. top lady. Shout out to <laughs> mom. You should send me all these photos. I'll put, put them up here. But wait, yeah. tell me, tell me more. People want to know about Jimmy Chin. I know people want to know about Jimmy Chin. What's he like? What's it like sharing a cabin with him? What kind of, kind of things is he talking about? He said free solo. Oh man, um, yeah, I guess, uh, like he's just like a nice dude, really chill. Got to give me more dirt than this. You got, he's a nice dude. What? Tell me more. What does he want? I don't know. Like, there's no like, there's no scoop here, Vince. Like, he's just like a chill dude. He's really, really good at taking pictures. Like, that's his jam. <laughs> Very good, in fact. In fact, even National Geographic thinks so. 
Um, I remember though, like one thing was he was like talking about like putting these like remote control cameras on Free Rider because the cameramen like when they were filming that didn't want to like it was like a weird thing to have to deal with like to to be uh, close to Alex Honnold like whilst he's doing this like free climbing like what if he did fall like like how would the cameraman feel like responsible could it be distracting for him so they had this like remote control camera set up and he was talking about like the logistics of getting these like remote control camera but he had already filmed it right he's talking afterwards think so like unless he was talking about how he was gonna film it i can't remember like maybe it was like in the middle in that gap between when when he had this first go and his second go yeah i don't don't know that's weird that he's talking about it at the hut with strangers right because i feel like that was such a secretive movie when they were filming it yeah it did feel like um at that point i think uh yeah it hadn't been like fully revealed yet hmm so, like, you guys got, like, the insider scoop from a true outsider's perspective because you guys aren't part of the I guess, I guess so, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I'm, like, super nerdy on film, so that's that's really <laughs> cool. Yeah, like, reading the book, it sounds like Alex Honnold's first attempt, I think he never got to that boulder hard part, boulder crux, as they say. So, but there were camera guys lined up there. And then later on, they <clears throat> they reassessed and they thought, yeah, it's too distracting. It's too much stress on Alex Honnold to go through that difficult section of the climb yeah. while there's a guy there. So they ended up setting a a permanent camera there, a fixed camera. So. Do you remember what month it was that the um, that, that ascent got done? When I want to say fall, already? but I don't know. Which, yeah. I think it's fall, but I don't know which month. It was, yeah. It's like, yeah, I guess we were there in uh july so yeah if it was if it was like august and september and october when that first was done then yeah it was in between Mm. yeah what are the crew dynamics like for professionals like that because that's the epitome of professionals they sound like really pretty renowned mountaineers and climbers and the best filmer are they cracking jokes or just talking business yeah like yeah like hanging out like cracking jokes and uh like everyone's like just at work, right? Yeah. 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 Like, good conversation, though. Like, everyone had time to talk. Mm. And uh, it was really good to hear people's stories of, like, you know, their their mountaineering history. I don't remember this is two years ago for now, now for me, so I don't remember the ins and outs of, like, all the conversations. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> You're like, Vince, I got this recording <laughs> from the hut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just getting it out of here. Let's let's leave on a educational note for for folks that are looking at doing these kind of expedition. What what recommendations do you have if they're this is a big mission that seems like you embarked on? You know, yeah. if, if people are starting out, what would you recommend they? Why would you recommend they do it, and how would you recommend they go about it? I think like building a really really broad set of skills is like a really good idea. Trying not to it depends what you want from your climbing, but like for me, I've always been interested in having a really wide breadth of skills and not specializing in anyone. And uh, I think that's a, a good approach for an alpinist if you wanted to get into that. Um, reading blog posts by Andy Kirkpatrick. He's he's a British mountaineer and he writes about the kinds of stuff that you need to know to be able to survive in the Alpine. 
And like, yeah, like easily like 50% of the stuff that I know about alpine climbing has come from Andy Kirkpatrick's blog. It's a free blog. It's mm. really funny and it's really cool. It's really mm. fun to read. So that's like a, a good, like kind of treasure trove of like of tips. You know, he'll tell you like how to stay warm at night and how to dig a snow cave and like how to, how to like sew those little things onto your gloves so that you, your gloves don't fall off when you take your gloves off. Oh, like, yeah. Tricks of yeah. trade. Yeah, just loads of stuff. Like, really cool. Peeing in a Gatorade bottle yeah, within your sleeping exactly. bag to keep yourself warm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's some good stuff. Yeah, like, learning from people who are more experienced than you is a good way to learn. But also, going and figuring stuff out by yourself is like... I, I'm not sure I want to, like, encourage loads of people to get into alpinism, though. Yeah, exactly. That's... I was just going to say, I feel... Like, sometimes I'm wary to recommend rock climbing or mountaineering to individuals because well there's a dangers but it's got this nature of sucking you in like an addiction in a sense and i was just thinking that like talking to you the other day and lily when we were just sharing a beer i was thinking you were telling me about like getting a truck and living out of the the back of the truck or whatever to have access to it i was really thinking of the addiction of outdoor adventure and, and especially for rock climbers and stuff for the most part they like if people are really sucked into it they're not drinkers they're not necessarily that much of weed smokers they're not they don't have a drug or much of an addiction except for whatever sport they're doing that's usually rock climbing or whatever there's other ones but then you're sucked into that you're basically a meth addict of the sport and that your whole life revolves around that your time goes into that your investments go into that and you just do the bare minimum you can to get by and get more of that okay so i don't think that's bad in and of itself i think it's like kind of a beautiful thing right to to have something like that you're passionate about in life um it's just that like over the years, I was listening to like a podcast by Will Gard, just kind of pointing out that like alpinism like is objectively dangerous. You know, you kind of like do all these things and like get up at like 3 a.m. and like run over a glacier to avoid getting like serax falling on your head and avoid rockfall and avalanches. And like, yeah, it's real and it's like exciting, but it's like also really genuinely like that stuff's going to kill you. Whereas something like rock climbing, I feel like is a lot safer. You know, you're more likely to just break a bone and probably you won't even do that, right? Mountain biking, you're definitely going to break a bone. If you go hard at mountain biking for a year or two, you're just going to break all, you're going to break bones. With rock climbing, I've never, I've been rock climbing for 10 years and I've not broken a bone ever. And, and you asked at the start of the podcast, I can't remember exactly what your question was, but like, I remember like one of the answers I hesitated to give was like, yeah, you kind of wonder whether it's like the right thing to be doing, you know, with your time and like you're compelled to go do it because it's so beautiful. And it's one of the most nourishing things that you can get out of life is to be in this environment where for like days on end, your job is to move through technical terrain and manage hazards and perform and like stay on the rock and protect the rock and like avoid like these the, yeah these hazards and make good decisions and it's like one of the most like rewarding and nourishing things that you can get out of life but it's also like really dangerous it is dangerous i'm still grappling with that it's not like there's ever an answer like yeah it's like totally fine to go you're taking a risk and is it worth the risk to you to go into these places 
And like for me, sometimes it is, and sometimes it's not. It's always really good fun. The one thing when you were telling me that story early on that I was thinking of is how tense you tend to be mentally and physically when you're up there. So when you're on these narrow ridge lines or you're up there in the mountains, personally at least, maybe that's because of low, like very low experience. I'm super tight in a sense, and I, like whether that is actually physically my muscles are tight or not, I just feel like pressure. Right. And then as you're descending and getting to a lesser and lesser risk. So say you're on the, the peak, now you get down to a face where it, now it's repelling. It's no longer on a ridge line. Okay. I feel a little less tense. And then I repel onto the crevasse and I'm thinking, okay, whew, less tense. I'm no longer on vertical surface. And now I got to get through this crevasse and it's just these layers and layers that are your shedding of tension until you're finally out and home back on your sofa and you're just, you just sit down and go. And I I don't know. I don't know if that's why they say the best mountaineers are the ones with short memory. And I'm not saying I don't enjoy it when I'm up there. I'm just saying I'm very happy when I'm back home as well, you know, until I want to do it the next weekend. Yeah, I, I feel I feel the same thing going on as well. I remember this 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 climb that we did. Me and my buddy went and climbed up this like local mountain in the coast range called Mount Cook, and it just looked like it was going to be this chill line, but actually it was like mixed fifth class, sorry M five with no gear for like two or three pitches. But there was gear, but it was like really run out, and like most of the rock was loose. And I remember thinking like oh, I don't have a choice now apart from to like do the next move. And like, I hope there's another move after this that I can do because if there's not, I'm I'm scuppered. And I remember thinking like most of the time I was actually moving upwards, like having this like deep sense of dread and like being like in a place that I shouldn't be. But then when I was coming down, thinking that it was justified, um, I, I think like that's a good indicator that if you keep on doing this kind of thing, then you're gonna you're gonna meet something you don't want to meet at some point mm. yeah so I've, i want to like try and what i've always been a pretty cautious climber and i want to try and walk that line as carefully as i can and pay attention to those moments where i'm like okay that time i wasn't like in a place that i can just justify going into again and again i need to either get better technically or i need to learn to place better gear or just need to not go and climb that kind of route mm. you know um, I, I had a moment uh, a couple of years ago in a pub in the UK when I like started like rattling off like um, kind of all my favorite stories. I, I had a really good group of friends around. Some of them I knew really well. Some had never met before. Like the beers were flowing. And like, I remember like having this group kind of captivated and like, like I was telling all my favorite stories. And then I got to sort of the ninth story and realized that I'd nearly died in every one of those stories. And I was like, oh. And I noticed it and I was like, oh, oh yes, yeah, that's, that's actually true. I was like, I don't know how I feel about that. And I've thought about it quite a lot since. I was like, I don't feel, I don't feel good about that. Like, I don't want to, like, <laughs> I want to keep going on adventures, but I want them to be safe ones, you know? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that didn't change anything as far as your process moving forward after that conversation, right? It did, actually. Actually, it happens that that day at the pub, I'd fallen headfirst into the sea. Oh, yeah. That's a good note to end this <laughs> podcast on. 
till we have you on next time, Mike. We'll we'll have you on live when COVID's over because you're my neighbor. Yeah, Thanks good for coming, Vincent. Thanks for chatting. Until yeah. we uh, we talk about the headfirst rock climber <laughs> in the ocean story. Tune in next time. Did you really listen that long? Good for you. Oh my god, you need to get a life. <laughs> Once again, this is the last time you will ever hear my beautiful voice as a subseries of the Rescue Swimmer Mindset Podcast. So follow Wilder entertainment on apple Podcasts, on spotify youtube and wherever else subscribe do that stuff or forever hold your peace and the fact that you will never see this face or hear this voice ever again if you're wondering what's next on the world entertainment podcast well there is a plane crash in the works and that's pretty funny because they don't really want to share this story so we're weeding through the legal threads to get access to that story it's an upward battle but we'll get them on another episode we're going to rewind into a epic journey that happened in the 40s called the Kantiki journey that's oh i won't say too much but basically they took this raft from south america all the way to the pacific islands near hawaii and just the epic journey i think it was 120 days out at sea and they went through all these different types of survival stories that are still used today by the military as a source to understand how to survive and adapt out in the ocean and we're going to have some survivalists talking about techniques to snare, to kill, murder, and eat squirrels, rabbits, and different types of things in a survival-like fashion. So we got a lot of good stuff coming up. And we're going to be cursing a lot more on the Wildertainment Podcast. Curse City is coming up on episode 11. Woo!